You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. In the last decade, premium chocolate has evolved from being entirely niche to much more mainstream, differentiated from the big players in the market by their focus on provenance, ethics and cocoa content. They're changing the perception of what makes good chocolate. Our guest today is Angus Thulwell, CEO and co-founder of Hotel Chocolat, an independent luxury British chocolate brand Incidentally, with its own cocoa farm in St. Lucia. Buying a, you know, an old cocoa farm on the other side of the planet, yeah, it does seem a bit crazy. But, you know, I, I have a connection with the Caribbean. I, I, you know, it isn't so weird. He talked to my colleague Sasha Kadri about growing up in the Bahamas, how his first chocolate venture was, in his words, at the wrong end of the telescope and how he feels ashamed about the industry regarding the very uneven playing field when it comes to cocoa farmers' wages. We're supposed to be making a happy product, and even a small inflection and change there, you know, would make a transformative change in cocoa growers' livelihoods. Angus pinpointed the moment he realised things were starting to come together for the business. I think it was probably about 10 years ago, so about 2010, and customers had sort of travels a lot more with um, low-cost air travel. That travel opened people's minds up. And one decade later, more change in the shape of the pandemic, which has enabled the company to step up. Culturally, I mean, it's made us much tighter and has reaffirmed that we can act really quickly. Even though we're a medium-sized business, we, we can make things happen emphatically and quickly. Here's Sasha with Angus. Angus, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat today. How have you been coping over the last nine months, just on a personal level? How's it been for you? On a personal level, we've been very lucky. We're a close family. We have a house in the country, so we've been able to sort of escape and make a new nerve centre where, you know, we can make fast decisions and um, really adapt quickly. So on, on, on that kind of very fortunate basis, there's been an element of, I suppose, uh, you know, going back to being a, a small entrepreneur again, of having to dig deep and having to adapt, having to lead and drive change rapidly, which I've got to admit is a little bit exhilarating. 
<laughs> yeah, good for you. And 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 let's just go back to, if I may, your childhood. You were born in Newcastle, but you lived in Barbados until the age of nine. And what was that like? Um, it was well, uh, as you can imagine, a bit of a rude awakening when um, when we came back from living in Barbados for six years and landed back in the northeast again. And it was uh, yeah, it was. But, you know, both geographies have huge charm and, you know, I, I love both of them in different ways. And, uh, you know, when I go back to the northeast, I always feel, you know, real connection. And similarly, when I, when I go to the West Indies, the Caribbean, I, I, I feel the same. So I think, um, yeah, it's they've, they've played a profound role in, in, in my own personal development and my outlook. Geordies are, are very sort of optimistic and live in the moment typically and you know western uh, caribbeans are you know there's a real sort of warmth and, and a respect for nature and and, and also a, a kind of directness in, in a speech pattern which is really intriguing so when somebody's run over by a car it's not you know oh dear they've been run over it's they got mashed down you know and, that, and, that, and that's that sort of a very powerful use of language um, I think has made me a bit obsessed about what you know how you can use words to to sort of evoke evoke meanings and 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 use it as a, a you know use words in a very powerful way and particularly in a brand setting. Absolutely. And did you ever imagine that you would come kind of full circle and then you know at this stage of your life own you know a plantation in the West Indies, age nine, Angus? Could you ever imagine anything like that? No, I probably would have been, um, yeah, you know, very excited about it. I mean, I thought when we when we sailed back from Barbados, that was pretty much it, and we were, you know, going to be UK based, and, and that was it. But no, it's it's funny how little little things in your life, you know, are, are there and they're, and they're speaking, you know, in, in your ear. And, and if you're, I think if you're of an outlook where you're alive to opportunities. And, and you like that sort of thing, then you can connect them together and say, okay, buying a, you know, an old cocoa farm on the other side of the planet, yeah, it does seem a bit crazy, but, um, you know, I, I have a connection with the Caribbean. I, I, you know, it isn't so weird. I'm just very grateful we bought the cocoa farm before we became a listed business. Yeah, and I definitely want to ask you about that a bit later. Um, I read that maybe potentially you were always destined to be an entrepreneur, Angus, because I read that when you were at school and you were in sixth form, at your school there was free bread and butter and apparently you used to prepare it and sell <laughs> midnight snacks to fellow students. Is that, is that the well, case? Well, yes, I mean, it, it started really because um, we had big open dormitories in North Yorkshire and it was really freezing most of the time. And I, I was, uh, you know, sixth form in charge of a dormitory, and I, I was making myself some some toast uh, in the evening, and um, I used to always get requests from some of the really kind of desperate, you know, young boys saying, "Oh, please, please, go have some toast," and um, and then I thought, okay, let's put this on a proper footing. Let's get three of the boys to be on making the toast and, and delivering it bedside and collecting, you know, five peas. And um, we, we've got endless amounts of, of you know, bread and, and free butter and free electricity. And I've got a toaster 
we're in business, best profit margins ever. <laughs> Absolutely. So the seed started there. And I know quite often when people talk about Hotel Chocolat, they talk about you and you seem to be more of the public face. But of course, you have a business partner, Peter. How did you meet him? Um, could you tell us a bit more about that? And what made you decide to go into business together? Yes, Peter and I have been in business 30 years together. And, you know, we, we, we still, you know, talk most days and we, we love working together. And the way we met was, um, well, Peter effectively hired me. I, he had been an early investor in a Cambridge uh, tech company, and they were looking for somebody who could help them um, export the, the the product that they had. And I'd, I'd just come back from a kind of university-linked sojourn in, in, in France where I'd learned about the broad high-tech sector, and I'd been in a, in a, in a sort of business development role and I, I, was, I came back to, to England to be with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And I was looking for a job in a similar sort of sector. And Peter and I met up and he, he, um, he has a reputation of being very cautious. But I always like the fact that he hired me on the spot with only one interview. And that, you know, if you know Peter, that, that's, that's unusual. But um, he also you know, knows a good thing. And, and you know, he, he and I have a, a, a really, you know, a really good kind of alignment in terms of what excites us. And he's capable of being excited about opportunities as much as I am. Yeah, we, we started working together. And then within, within that first year, we decided to leave that business and start up ourselves in the most ridiculously niche um, idea in the whole confectionery world, which was little packs of... Uh, corporate branded peppermints and that was literally one product company yeah and I was going to say so you if you just look at the way your business involved evolved so you started from the corporate branded chocolate peppermints you went to Choc Express um, and then Hotel Chocolat as it was rebranded in in 2003 and how important do you think that journey was in getting you to where you are now I think it, it depends what type of culture you have in, in your business DNA, ours is most definitely evolutionary. And um, you, know, you can see in our, in our business history, we started with the probably the nichest, um, I don't know, confectionery idea ever. And we, we gradually uh, worked our way from the wrong end of the telescope to being a broad, contemporary luxury chocolate brand accessed through multiple channels, but with a by coming through that evolutionary journey, we were approaching things in a radically different way than the more incumbent heritage chocolate brands who've been around for a hundred years and, and were quite traditional in their product range, their brand values, their their roots to their customers. So yeah, we we developed a bit of a taste for that evolutionary way of working and it's it's really, you know, it's really embedded in our DNA now. And the chocolate landscape, if you think back, say, I'm thinking when I was young and I used to want to get chocolate, I mean, there was Thorntons on the high street. The chocolate landscape was quite bleak. Now it's littered with amazing chocolate producers of all kind of provenances. People want to know where the chocolate come from. People want to know that it's ethically sourced. But when you started, that wasn't really the case, was it? Uh, no, it definitely wasn't. I mean, there was no connection back to the uh, the, the cocoa agriculture. There was a, you know, a, like a complete chocolate wall between um, that side and then all the, I suppose, the, the marketing, the, the uh, you know, 
peak time TV adverts. We can all remember those from you know from our childhoods. And yeah, it was it was a pretty closed business, very uh, dominated by big players who've been around for a long time, and it, it looked like it had low growth as well. There was not really much going on, so it didn't look on the on the surface a very attractive business. Uh, but there was an inherent staleness and boredom that it sort of set in, and because chocolate is given a lot of I suppose goodwill by customers, you know, chocolate makes people smile, makes them happy. There wasn't a critique of it. It was just, you know, the, I suppose over decades it just gradually set in that this was the way chocolate was, and we didn't really realise that what we were onto until we were sort of in it and we started thinking, well, who, who's talking about about authenticity, about cocoa agriculture, about the bean, about more cocoa and less sugar. It seemed like sugar had just become a bigger part of the ingredients to the point where when you turned most chocolate bars over, even dark bars, the biggest ingredient was stunningly sugar. And the reason is it's, you know, one twentieth the cost of cocoa. So on a number of levels, there was, you know, a lot of things wrong with the, the sector. And so we, we just, you know, saw opportunities and, you know, made a kind of incursion. And for a while, it seemed like we weren't really going anywhere. It took, a, it took longer than I expected to open up the fissures and, 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 you know, ask consumers to think about chocolate in a different way. But when it did happen, it happened with uh, breathtaking speed. And, you know, that's, that was always astonishes me. When did that start to happen? When did that evolve in consumers' minds where they made the switch? And was there something that triggered that, do you think? There's a number of, of, of sort of factors at play. And in terms of the date, I, I think it was probably about um, 10 years ago, so about 2010, where we suddenly felt that we had momentum and and customers had sort of travelled a lot more with um, low-cost, um, you know, air travel, tasted sort of more exciting food, being exposed to the way different cultures approach chocolate, obviously European, but also further afield, you know, going to South America and seeing the cradle of, of, of cocoa and chocolate. And, and, and that travel opened people's minds up. But also some of our competitors were making brand errors by, you know, going relentlessly more in pursuit of profit and forgetting about where they'd come from, you know, quite often amazing Quaker roots and, you know, and, and, and that kind of corporate greed of ever bigger acquisitions and squeezing um, the, the, you know, the supply chain and dumbing down the whole thing, taking great recipes and making them more sugar-based. And, and some of our other competitors deciding to, who were in a premium position, deciding to, to start selling their, their chocolates in, in petrol stations and all supermarket channels as well. And, and then wondering why they weren't valued as a gift anymore. So there's a sort of number of kind of own goals committed by the big players, uh, which didn't hit down straight away. And then there was a big sort of mega trend of consumers being more interested in health, you know, which rolls over into more cocoa and less sugar, um, ethics, which makes people curious about, well, where does that cocoa come from? And, you know, how do you do it? 
and then also curiosity in terms of uh, you know tastes, trying new things, and and being open to to viewing chocolate in the same way as they'd already started to view coffee and, and wine, and you know better bread and better beer, all the things that have you know been happening. Chocolate kind of joined that mega trend. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And you talked about the the big players and the inequity there. Um, it seems like a lot of that inequity is still going on in terms of, you know, the wage that they pay, you know, their producers. And they seem to get around it by percentages of amounts in bars of confectionery, I'd call them, rather than chocolate. How does that make you feel? Because I know for you, that's one of the pillars of importance in your business, how do you feel about the fact that the playing field is still so uneven and that people who earn a pittance are still not being treated fairly by these big producers who could sacrifice some profit and, and even out the playing field? Two emotions, really. One is complete frustration that there's been decades to, to, to make more um, progression faster. And everybody knows that it's a problem that they're even just from a business protection point of view, the fact that cocoa growers are becoming older and older and young people don't want to go into it should be sending off alarm signals, even for the most profit-obsessed multinational. There's a fragility setting into your supply chain, but on a human level and a brand level, you look at the evidence, consumers are beginning to be really interested in this and the consumer power is going to be conferred towards brands that are doing the right thing and you know it, it's really frustration but then the other emotion is I suppose astonishment that the self-interest thing hasn't kicked in yet and then overlaying all that is a bit of I suppose feeling ashamed for our industry I mean we're supposed to be making a happy product and you know and, and still there's not enough movement and progression there when fundamentally we have you know, a product model that is high margin. And yeah. even even a small inflection and change there, you know, would make a transformative change in, in Cocoa Grow's livelihoods. 
So we're more determined than ever to, to keep dialing hours up every year, which we have been, you know, for the 15 years that we've been developing our own program. But there's, yeah, I mean, it's all those emotions mingling together, but it's, it's a big subject of discussion inside our business. How do we move to a, you know, much higher level of, of impact, which includes showing and demonstrating that there is another model that can work. And once, once that's out there, which a few other brands are doing and, and, and kind of in, in the same mindset, then it throws a light on other people who are not doing it. And it's going to accelerate the consumer power, which ultimately is the only thing that gets some people to change their minds. I just wonder what it would take to take the bigger players to task, because I feel that this conversation has been going on for quite a long time, and yet they still continue in that same way. And also, there is a big market for someone who only wants to pay. I mean, what, you can get a big bar of dairy milk for a pound, for example. You know, that's quite a lot of chocolate for a pound compared to maybe two small chocolates for a pound. So they still have quite a big market, which is perhaps why they're not motivated to make that change. Yeah, but I mean, the yeah, the other argument is, well, if, if there's so little cocoa in your massive bar, paying the cocoa growers a bit more is not going to hurt you, is it? I mean, it's uh, the economics have got to work one way or the other. If cocoa is important, then do the right thing. If it's not important, then it can't be economically that impactful to you. Part of the problem is, is the confusion between sugar-led confectionery, which is more like um, a cake or a donut or something, just happens to be brown, just happens to be able to use the same nomenclature as chocolate, which is should be led by cocoa in all cases, even white chocolate and milk chocolate. There's no reason why it can't be creamy and mellow and still have loads of good cocoa in. So part of the problem is that the on the consumer side, this this sort of ability to use the smoke and mirrors to mix up um, you know what is confectionery, what's chocolate, and, and then that would that would that would accelerate the route towards uh, what we both want. Yeah, yeah, it would. Is this something that you speak to other chocolate producers about? Is there a kind of a group that um, looks at how to tackle these issues? Yes, uh, there's a very good group called the Academy of Chocolate, which um, I'm, I'm, I'm part of, and it, I mean it doesn't have any representation from. The, the bigger players making confectionery. It's strictly about people involved in, in, in the making and the supporting of proper chocolate. But nevertheless, it's a lobbying group that has the ear of um, you know, good, uh, good media and, and is able to help, help make change. I just want to move on to talking about COVID, how your business has performed throughout COVID. I know you had to close a lot of your stores. How has the business performed since the first lockdown in March? Well, in a, in a very agile way. So I'm, I'm really proud of the way the whole Hershey family has sort of stepped up, both you know ethically, we've helped communities and the NHS, and and also professionally, we've been able to um, to, to pull levers and make things happen, which has put the business in the best possible position, both for dealing with the changing shape of and of which channels are working in which particular week. And, and also for the medium to long term of we're on a new trajectory now of possibilities and an opportunity. And then also culturally, I mean, it's made us much, much tighter and has reaffirmed and, and I suppose 
given us confidence that we can act really quickly, even though we're a medium-sized business, we, we can make things happen emphatically and quickly. And there's no turning back now. We've now, uh, you know, reached a higher level of, of business performance as a result of, you know, the imperative of this, this big threat. But um, in, in, in terms of um, performance, our, our, our sales are posing up really well because the online side has grown, you know, multiple times. The physical retail side has been um, on, off, on and then off again. And, you know, we've just been able to adapt and make sure that our chocolates are in the right place. A big part of the management of this has been about the supply chain, making sure that we have all the options available to leverage our multi-channel direct to consumer model, because it doesn't work if all the chocolates are dispersed in physical locations in, you know, 125 mini stock rooms, when where you really need them is at the centre so you can um, send them direct through parcel delivery. But we've learned very quickly since since March how to do that in a very smart way. And, and our results, you know, in terms of sales growth have been very pleasing. Has that made you change your mind about the need for physical stores? I know that when you started, it was very important for you to have a physical store so that people could get that instant gratification. Will you still pursue the same strategy of having bricks and mortar presence? Yes. I mean, for our brand and the, um, for like the instant gratification appeal of chocolate, it's, it's, a, it's a visceral thing. And it also means that we can have a very good uh, leisure offer, which effectively is you're strolling down the high street and you see a chocolat and you pop in and you get a chilled choc shake in the summer. And while, while you're there, pick up a few things for that evening and maybe next week when you're having some friends over and somebody's birthday. So that type of multiple level attraction and multiple level accessibility means that for us, physical retail will always have a key role in in, in our direct consumer model, the ability of our um, physical Huda Chocolats to welcome new new customers into the brand is is very powerful. And knowing that we we have a, a multi-channel, if you like, root system sitting behind that means that when when a new customer comes in through our front door for the first time and um, wants to join our VIP program, for example. We're, we're able to open up a, a dialogue on shared interests and you know shared ways that we can be of service. So we're very different to a you know a traditional mom and pop chocolate shop, and and also very different to you know dinosaur um, physical retailers who haven't changed since you know the 1970s and are wondering why suddenly all the you know the sky's falling in on them. We're more like a pure play who's decided that. In terms of new customer acquisition, physical retail is, in most cases, lower cost than um, advertising on Facebook or um, you know similar platforms. So that's the way we look at it as a as a way of our brand connecting with different tribes of consumers at different times of the day for them and different different ways they want the chocolate you know to work for them. Yeah, you mentioned they're kind of, you know, big chocolate kind of mammoths who haven't potentially invested in the digitalization of their business. And, and not just, you know, in your sector, but we've seen COVID has that has been the undoing of many businesses. We're seeing Arcadia just 
collapsing recently. Do you feel that you invested enough in the digitalization of your business, which allowed you to kind of up that side of your business and maybe the physical stores weren't operating or has that accelerated how much you may invest in that part of the business? Yeah, I think coming into, um, you know, the, the, the COVID uh, crisis, you know, starting, say, March, I think we'd, we'd invested sort of just enough. But what's become clear to us is that we, um, we, we, we can become and should become a digitally led business again. Um, and this is turning the clock back to, you know, the early 2000s when um, we were like that. There's, there's sort of like a rebalancing going on inside our business in terms of investment scale, uh, investment priorities. And the first manifestation of that was really doubling the size of our pick, pack and dispatch um, central warehouse, which um, our team did an amazing job um, to, to, you know, to carry out during um, a global epidemic. We were able to lay out the, the working um, flow in, in a super safe way, but also you know, massively um, muscle up our capabilities to get our stock package to do exactly what we wanted to do. If it turns out to be a 100% online Christmas, no problem. And, and that was the sort of challenge we set for ourselves. But the acceleration that's happened is, has happened across, you know, the whole economy and what was going to happen in, in, you know, five to seven years happened in five to seven months. So yeah. for, for a challenger brand like Petit Chocolat, setting apart the, the, you know, the, the terrible human costs of the global epidemic, but from a pure business analysis point of view, it's an advantage to have that kind of disruption and acceleration in the market. And I read also that you religiously eat chocolate every day and that apparently if you don't, your wife says that it puts you in a bad mood. Yes, it's, um, it's definitely true. And um, she, yeah, she said that to me um, just a few years ago and, and said, I've really noticed that when you don't, when you, you know, we're traveling or something, you, you skip having chocolate, you're not quite the same person. Surely, Angus, your house must be full of chocolate. I mean, I could imagine if I just popped over now, you'd open the cupboards with, you know, all the selectors, all the various dark chocolates. You know, it must be full of chocolate, right, in your house. The other element of my wife's complaints where she really likes, um, you know, several of our recipes in, in, a, in a quite obsessional way. And if I don't keep them in stock, it's, it's, it's trouble. And it's got to the point where when I go to one of our um, local Petit Chocolats, the team know what I'm what I have to buy because it's it's the list that my wife's obsessed about. Well, Angus, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Really appreciate it. Great to get an insight into the business, and uh, lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and, it, and it's a real privilege to be part of your podcast series. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Out of Office, and I hope you enjoyed Sasha's chat with Angus Tholwell, CEO and co-founder of Hotel Chocolat, as much as I did. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspare. We'll be back next week. Till then, stay well. Thank you for listening, and happy holidays.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.